Good morning, beloved. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, and today we'll be looking at verses 6 through 19 this morning as we continue in, our, in the Lord's Prayer. Um, before we read the text this morning, let me quickly remind you of all that's going on. It is the night of Jesus' betrayal, um, Jesus and his 11 disciples are somewhere between the upper room and um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in just a few short hours from now, Judas will lead a mob into the garden. And the Lord Jesus will be then arrested. And after several mock trials, the Lord Jesus will then be crucified. And so here in chapter 17, Jesus stops and and prays to his heavenly father, and he does so audibly so that the disciples can hear and be strengthened and encouraged by the good Lord's words. You'll recall we read the first five verses of this prayer last week as the Lord revealed his passion for being restored to his former glory in order to glorify the father. And all of this, those verses, look ahead to his finished work on the cross, um, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory at the right hand of the Father. Um, in verse 1 of the prayer, um, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. And of course, we've gone through the gospel and heard about this hour. Well, now the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then again in verse 5, he prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And though the Lord despised the shame of the cross, as we just saw in Hebrews 12, it tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Because Jesus knows that it will be at the cross. It will be at the cross that God's glory will be on absolute full display like no other, other event in all of history. We see all of the divine attributes at the cross, and we talked about those last week. The righteousness of God was on display at the cross. The holiness of God was on display at the cross. His mercy was on display at the cross, and of course the love of God was on display at the cross. And that was his mission as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he prayed in, in verse 2, we saw last week, Father, even as you gave him the Son authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And, and that's the Lord's passion, wasn't it? To atone for the sins of his people so that he could provide the gift of eternal life. But now the prayer shifts. And in verses 6 through 19, he turns his attention to his own, to the 11, as he here intercedes on their behalf, and by extension, all will, who will come after them. So I want to begin this morning by reading this incredible 
next section of our Lord's Prayer together, and afterwards we can carefully consider each of these verses. So beginning in verse 6, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays, Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, for they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak into the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. With these verses, we proceed yet even deeper into this prayer that was offered by our Lord on our behalf. As the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ must intercede for us in order to bring us all the way to glory. First John 2 1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He not only interceded for you at the cross to pay your debt of sin, but as your advocate, he continues to intercede for you as it is that means by which he will ultimately bring you to glory. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for you and rise again, but he lives to make intercession for you. Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for his own. And uh, the Apostle Paul knew this. A familiar verse that we all know is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And in Romans 5, Paul tells us God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then I want you to notice the next phrase. Verse 9, he says much more than 
wait a minute, how can there be anything much more than that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice what Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of son, through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you see that? Which is much more than his death, his life. Life in him was life. Christ's death provides the sacrifice for sin, but he ever lives to make intercession for us to bring us all the way to glory. That's the much more that Paul speaks of. He goes on interceding for us. He continues to intercede. Here in chapter 17, really the Holy Spirit just draws back the veil even further as we are escorted in by the Lord Jesus Christ into the very holy of holies and into the throne room of God. And from verse 6 on in this extraordinary prayer, we have a, a, a glimpse into his intercession as he prays for all those who will believe in him through all of redemptive history. So as we step into this prayer, our challenge is really to get our hearts and our minds around all of these verses that Jesus is praying today. We are certainly going to be pushed. There are a lot of verses. Uh, in the first five verses that we looked at last week, Jesus prays concerning his relationship to the Father and the future glory that they will soon share together. In verses 6 through 19 today, Jesus prays specifically for his 11 disciples. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, verse 20 through 26, he will pray for those who will come to believe in him through the disciples' teaching and right through to the end of the age. And so we fit into that category. Th this is an extraordinary prayer and one that we are truly privileged to have in front of us today. And so um, just to help us try to consume um, this massive steak, I, I try to cut it up into several pieces so you don't eat it all in one bite. And so to help us go through this prayer, I've broken it down into three separate headings. Um, as Jesus prays for his loving disciples, he prays first for their persons in verses 6 through 10, their protection in verses 11 through 16, and their perseverance in verses 17 through 19. But um, let's begin with number one, as Jesus prays for their persons. They are mine. And um, what I mean by saying praise for the persons is that when Jesus has finished praying for himself, he prays not for the church as um, a movement at large. Um, it's not a generic prayer, but for his 11 disciples as particular men, as particular persons, he focuses on those he now calls his friends, those whom he loved enough to give his life as their substitute. Verse 6 begins this next section. As Jesus prays these words, he prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. This world manifested it means to make visible, uh, to make clear, to make known. 
and Jesus is the one who manifested the Father to the disciples. When he says, I have manifested your name, that encompasses all that he is, all that the Father is. He's revealed God the Father's character. He's revealed God the Father's nature, and he's revealed God the Father's attributes. Psalms 9, verse 10 reads, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And for Jesus to manifest the name of the Father to the disciples means that Jesus has come to make his Father known to these men. Jesus is the greatest revelation of the Father that there is. Now, the Father is manifested in multiple ways. Uh, we could say he is manifested through creation. Psalms 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Creation itself screams for an all-powerful, an all-knowing, an all-transcendent and mighty creator. We can also say God has certainly revealed himself through his word. But the greatest revelation of God the Father to us is in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what we see in the Old Testament. God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, Jesus is the, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ because he has manifested God the Father to us. In John 1, verse 18, we opened this gospel over a year ago now, and it says, no one has seen God at any time. He, Jesus, has made him known. He, Jesus, has made him known. In John 12, verse 45, Jesus says, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. And in John 14, 9, Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So all of the New Testament declares this over and over again, that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the exact inference, the image of the invisible God, and he has been revealed. He has been manifested. He has been seen. Colossians 2.9, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philippians 2, 6, who existed in the form of God. Hebrews 1, and is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus has come to manifest, to reveal the Father to the disciples, and this continues on to this very day. What you and I know of God the Father 
has been known principally and chiefly through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so please note in verse 6 who he has made this manifestation to. He prays, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Who are the men? The men here refers to the 11 disciples. To the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. <laughs> Let's talk about this. They were yours and you gave them to me before they were ever called before they ever confessed Jesus to be the Christ the son of the living God they were yours past tense they were yours the son praying to the father they were yours father this is a stunning statement they were in the world, and you gave them to me out of the world. But they were yours. Even when they were in the world, what's the world? The world is the evil, anti-God, anti-Christ system of the world, ruled satanically by the evil of the devil and of sin and of corruption composed of demons and unredeemed humans being in opposition to God who belong to Satan and who live in the kingdom of darkness. Within the realm of darkness, there are some, however, some sinners who belong to God. They were yours. Were. Not are. Were. Even when they were in the world, they were yours. And you gave them to me out of the world. You see this? Uh, back in John 15, verse 18, our Lord said earlier in the same night, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You were in the world, but I chose you out of the world. God delivered you out of the world. When you were still in the world, yes, you were lost in sin. You were lost in darkness. You were deaf, blind, dead in your trespasses and sin. You were still God's. This is a powerful reality. Uh, I, I want to show this to you elsewhere. It's all throughout scripture. In fact, I had a wonderful journey going through this. Uh, turn to the book of Acts just for a moment. There's a few illustrations I can show you quickly in Acts. Acts 13, verse 48. This is during Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. And this is incredibly interesting says in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, and, and, and what they heard is Paul preaching what the prophet Isaiah had said, um, that the Messiah was a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, and that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So when the Gentiles heard this, 
they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. Now listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you get that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They were appointed. They had been appointed to eternal life. That's why they believed. They had been appointed to eternal life before they believed. All right. We see this truth uh, throughout Scripture. Turn just a couple pages to Acts 18. This is the foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 18, we again see the ministry of Paul. He's in Corinth, and in verse 9, um, the Lord comes along to Paul in a vision. And the Lord said to Paul, Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul was being constantly threatened and the Jews had become attacking him. But the Lord said to him, do not be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And then here we go. For I have many people in this city. <laughs> Paul, you need to go to Corinth. You need to go preach the gospel to my men there. I have many people in this city. There were people in Corinth who belonged to Christ, who belonged to God the Father. They were still in the world, in the darkness, in the ignorance of their sin, but they belonged to God. How did they become gods? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Where were you when the foundations of the war world were being put together? He predestined you to adoption through Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those who have been chosen of God. Back in Ephesians 1 verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So God for his own glory chose for himself a people and they were his. They were his even though they may not have been saved yet. They were his. They were predestined for justification. 
they were predestined for adoption. They were predestined for heaven because they were chosen by God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Those who believe in the Son of God did so because God first chose them from the beginning for salvation. Those whom he predestined then have always been God's. They were God the fathers before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus, in our prayer here, prays in verse 6, they were yours, and you gave them to me. <laughs> the father has chosen a bride for his son. The father chooses the Father draws, the Father gives, the Son receives, the Son keeps, the Son raises, and not a single one will be lost. That was John chapter 6. So, as the Father gives us to the Son, we are his love gift. That's why the New Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21 as a bridal city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's why Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb as all the redeemed of all the ages become the bride of Christ and we can forever love, love him and worship him and honor him and adore him and reflect his glory for all of eternity perfectly. And so, those whom the Father has given to the Son are distinguished in the world by what we see at the end of verse 6. And they have kept your word. <laughs> if you would like to know who the ones are whom the Father has chosen, they are made evident by their obedience to the word of God. And that is to say that they have placed their life under the authority of his word. And it is their deepest heart's desires to keep his word and to abide in his word. A very important verse, you know, remember we went through this, is John 8, verse 31, in which Jesus was describing who a true disciple is. And he said in John 8, verse 31, if you continue in my word or, or abide, then you are truly disciples of mine. Or you can say it the other way. If you are truly disciples of mine, then you will continue in my word. <laughs> True believers are those who will continue to abide in the word of God. And to continue in the word of God means that they will continue to live in obedience to what it commands. And, and we understand that obedience is not a way in which we can earn our salvation but rather it is the inevitable result of genuine, true-saving faith. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Verse 6 of chapter 17 is, is very profound verse, and we could have spent all day on it and still not uncovered all the tools of it. So let's, 
us move on to verse 7 as Jesus continues his high priestly prayer. He prays in verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And what this boils down to is that his 11 disciples believed in essentially two great truths. That everything that Jesus had said and done had been given to him by God the Father. We've seen this confessed over and over again. Jesus repeats over and over again that everything he does, everything he says, everything he does, he does so according to what his Father has given him to do. And then number two, that Jesus himself has been sent from God. They confessed this. Um, they still didn't understand, and I would say still didn't accept, what Jesus had said about his death. And that was still an issue for, for them before the Holy Spirit. But they believed Jesus as the Christ, um, the Son of God, and that he worked by the power of God and did everything according to God's will. And that's what he means when he says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. They know that. Verse 8, For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And this is key here. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. So those three words there, they received, they understood, and they believed are all essential elements of true saving faith. We want to see that in the heart of every believer. To receive the word of God, to truly understand the word of God, and to believe the word of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is all necessary elements of, of what constitutes saving faith. They believed the, the Lord's divine origin, that he was co-equal with the Father. He was co-eternal with the Father. They believed that. So Jesus prays, these men have truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 9, we see how uh, narrow the immediate focus of Jesus' intercession is, as he is praying not for the world at large, but only on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. Notice in verse 9, for whom he prays for, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus emphasizes a, a startling contrast here as he makes clear, I ask on their behalf speaking first here of the 11 and then by extension all who will come after them. But then here's the contrast. He prays, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Jesus is interceding only for those whom he will die for, those whom the Father has given him. Jesus will have the gospel be preached to the whole world, but it is only for those who were chosen by the Father whom he loves who will come to believe in him. Yes, it is true that God shows a kind of love to all people in the world. Uh, theologians call it like a common grace. Uh, for example, he pleads with sinners to repent. Ezekiel 18.23, the Lord said, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. He, he extends 
the gospel invitation to them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever's, right? Whosoever's would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The Lord God causes the sun, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But Christ's intercessory work as the great high priest is only for those who belong to him eternally because they have been given to him by the Father. So Jesus prays, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Verse 10 is nothing short of a claim to deity um, and, and, and full equality with the Father. It, it again emphasizes the, the uh, intimate unity that the son shares with the father for any mere man to claim that all things of God's were his that would be a blasphemous presumption only one who is himself God could legitimately claim to be the owner of and ruler over all things <laughs> all things And um, since the Father and the Son have all things in common, believers who belong to the Father belong to the Son as well. So Jesus prays, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Even now, the faith that the disciples had in him as the Son of God brought to him glory. So he prays, I have been glorified in them. Well, that was number one as Jesus prays for their persons. Let's move on to number two in verses 11 through 16 as Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection as the Father will keep the Lord's disciples and not one of them will ever be lost. Verse 11, he continues in prayer. He prays, I am no longer in the world. And by hours from now, Jesus would no longer be in the world to protect and to care for his disciples. Um, this looked ahead to the cross um, as the time was no longer future. His hour had come. It had arrived. He was going away and his disciples would be staying behind. And the world would take all of his hatred that it has had at the Lord Jesus Christ and they will turn that and point that upon his disciples, all those who confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were then in desperate need of the Father's protection from the world around them. So here the Lord prays, I'm no longer in the world, looking ahead to, to his leaving, and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you. Verse 12. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. 
So the Father's protection of the disciples was essential for two reasons. Number one, it secured their glorification as it does for all the believers. Um, for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are protected, 1 Peter 1.5 says, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans 8.29-30 through 30 reveals that God's providential care forges an unbroken chain leading from eternity past to eternity future. When Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among the many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He will see him through to glory. And then secondly, the Father's protection also secured the disciples' unity with one another. It says in verse 11 of the prayer, Jesus prayed, Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one even as we are. And that is to say that they may be united, or that they may be united in their stand together against the opposition that will come from them, from the world, and that would set itself up in opposition to the kingdom of God and the furtherance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 12, while I was with them, the Lord said, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And the word guarded here means to protect, to keep, to observe, to watch over, like a good shepherd watches and protects his flock. Jesus says, the ones whom you've given me, I guarded them. I've protected them. I kept them. And that's what Jesus did throughout his three and a half years of public ministry. So in verse 12, he says, and not one of them perished. But the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus is the good shepherd who never lost a single one of his sheep that the father had given to him. But what about Judas? What happened to Judas? He's called here the son of perdition. Judas was never a son of God. He was always a son of perdition. Son means his nature. Perdition is the word for destruction. Waste, eternal ruin. He was the son of eternal destruction. It was used in Matthew 13, the broad road that leads to destruction. He is the son of destruction, not a son of God. You remember back in John chapter 6 at the end of the chapter, Jesus is with his disciples, and you remember the chapter started out wonderfully as, as probably well over 10,000 people were, were following and running after the Lord Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, and he fed all of them. 
And before that, we read that he healed all of them. And, and, and they were looking for the earthly king. And so they were chasing him and following him. But the next morning, the Lord got into and across the Sea of Galilee. He walked across. Everyone else got in the boats and, and rode across. And he was preaching. And you, you guys remember what happened. His words became too hard to hear. He's talking about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. And, and who can listen to these words? And so they all left, and Jesus looks to the twelve and says, you don't also want to leave too, do you? Probably one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And, and Peter responds by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you? the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. There was a devil there from the beginning. The son of perdition never was a son of God. Now you might ask, well, well isn't this a terrible stain on, on the Lord's plan? I mean... No, this was the plan so that scripture would be fulfilled. Back in chapter 13, on this very same evening, when they were all in the upper room, after Jesus had washed their feet, Jesus said in John 13, 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have again chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Talking about Judas's betrayal. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That's the I am. That you may believe I am. I know he is the son of perdition. He is a devil. The same night in the upper room, Satan entered into Judas. So now in chapter 17, verse 12, the Lord prays, while I was with them, I kept them, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Listen, this is all part of the plan. All a part of the plan. And it's important to know that Judas never fell away. Because he was never one of the sheep. He was a goat. Okay? He, he wasn't once saved and, and, and Jesus lost him. No. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Judas stands as a warning to all of us that we must be born again. It's not enough to just sit in the church pew every week and, and believe that's getting you into heaven. Nope. There are no stickers to pass out for, for what we do. It is only by the grace of God that we can be given a new heart and a transformed life and to then live a life that is pleasing to God. Well, as we now come to verse 13, 
and confident of the Father's protective care for his disciples, the Lord begins to look towards his return to the Father. And he prays in verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is now the third time this evening that Jesus speaks about his joy. Third time this evening, remember, all the way back in chapter 13 is when this night started. Okay? So chapter 13 right through 17, single night, Thursday night, the night before the Passion. And he talks about his joy, and this was his legacy to his followers. Understanding the Father's protection and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ's intercession inevitably produces joy in the hearts of these listening disciples. They, they must have been absolute, it just must have been stunning. Just a, a faith-filling experience for these men to be hearing the words of our Lord, praying this faithfully to the Father and the fact that the Lord said, so that they may have my joy, really indicates that this was not just um, some kind of arbitrary, temporary happiness. It was his joy, both that it was based on him, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and as Hebrews 12.2 says, it was the joy that was set before him. Joy that was not found in in the immediate circumstances, but in the eternal purposes of God. In verse 14, Jesus prayed, I have given them your word. Having spoken only divine truth, Jesus had given them God's word. In the past, God had spoken through his prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. And in contrast to the world, which rejected the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples had received it, and they believed it. And because of that, verse 14 says, and the world has hated them. Because after all, they were not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Because the disciples were no longer of the world, and their citizenship was no longer in the world, the world will hate them. The world will hate them. They belong to an entirely different realm than the domain of this world. And the world here refers to the world system again. The, the world system is a global opposition by Satan against the kingdom of God. And it is carried out through all the different worldly systems, the world of entertainment, the, the world of education, the world of pharmaceuticals, the world of politics. It's even moved into the world of sports. And it is empowered by Satan and is comprised of unbelievers and it is anti-Christ. It's not uh, neutral. No. It is anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-family, anti-church, anti-righteousness, anti-holiness, anti-justice. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so, that's the world we live in. We live in this world. But like the disciples and like the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not of the world. And it's important for us to realize this. 
the, the world is never going to uh, applaud us. The, the church needs to stop trying to accommodate the world by becoming more like the world. That's not going to draw anyone to Christ. We are called to be holy people set apart for Christ. You're not of this world. You're, you're a sojourner. You're uh, in exile. You're a foreigner. You're a stranger. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 15, Jesus continues. He prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Now, this is a good thing for us to hear because <laughs> You know, we, we, we get on that horse, and, and then we, we got to come down. Uh, because the will of God is also not for us all to move to the same lot together. It's not for us to, to only talk to one another. It is not for us to all ride the same bus back and forth to church, and we're not getting anywhere near those evil, wicked people. We never, ever talk to an unbeliever. This is not God's will for his church. God's will for the church is that we penetrate into every nook and cranny of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and fill it with the kingdom of light, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Listen, the Great Commission is still on the books. And we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus says in verse 15, he prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That is the devil. His prayer that we are kept from the evil one. And that does not mean that we will not ever be tempted. But that he would never shipwreck our faith in Jesus Christ. And somehow pick us off one by one. Whereby we would no longer profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Satan will never turn a believer into an unbeliever. In verse 16, Jesus reiterates what he prayed in verse 14. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The realm in which you and I live, the kingdom of light, and the realm in which the world functions, the kingdom of darkness, are just totally two diametrically opposite, opposed systems. Two different values, two different agendas, two different worldviews. It's water and oil basically everything that is of any importance. So Jesus prayed for number one, their protection, or number one, their person, number two, their protection, and then number three, he prays for their perseverance. He prays for their perseverance, and not only that they will just uh, be preserved, he will also pray for their sanctification, that they are sanctified. Look at uh, verse 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, this word, sanctify, 
uh, is mentioned here in uh, verse 17 twice, down in verse 19. Uh, it's a very important uh, verb. It, it means to be uh, set apart, uh, to be made holy. Um, it means to purify. It essentially means to be set apart from sin. And just as our Lord was praying for our joy, he also prays for our purity. Okay? Um, for our uh, continual um, separation from sin. Um, he prays that we are being sanctified, that we are becoming increasingly more and more holy in what we do. In 1 Peter 5, uh, 15 and 16, it says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Um, here in verse 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In our pursuit, um, living a life that is uh, God-honoring and holy. Um, there's just one instrument that is mentioned here. The primary instrument to sanctify us is the truth. Your word is truth. Of course, there's a work of the Holy Spirit and all sorts of stuff, but primary here, your word is truth. And that is why we preach the word. And that is why we teach the word. And why we love to gather together and to open the word of, of truth with one another and to study and rightly divide the scriptures together and all of them all of the scriptures are necessary for the believers sanctification as we are growing in the knowledge of his grace and we can grow no further than what the word and the spirit is doing i think of psalm uh, 119 verse 9 how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word Psalm 119, verse 11, just a few verses later. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word of God has such a sanctifying power. It's living, it's active, and it's powerful, and that it can wean us off of the world. I needed to be completely re-sanctified. My mind was, was so messed up by being in the world for all of those years. That's why Romans 12 talks about the renewing of your mind. And, and, and God's word, sanctifying power, can wean us off of the world and all of the filth and junk that we put into ourselves. And it can weld us to Christ and weld us to his spirit. There's much power in the living word of God. There's much more to say concerning 17, but I know you're hungry. So let's move on to verse 18. Jesus continues this incredible prayer. He prays, as you, Father, send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Um, listen, going back to this, only sanctified believers are ready to be sent into the world as the Father sent Christ into the world. We have to be grounded in his truth. Or we're not rightly representing Christ. And as you and I are being sent into the world, we must be sanctified in the truth. If we're to have any kind of impact in the world, we must be different from the world to make a difference in the world. And if we are trying to become like the world, we will have zero impact for the things of God on the world. If we were to be sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world, then we 
are going to have to be sanctified in the word of truth. It, it must conform us to the image of Christ if we are to be effective servants for our Lord. And so that's why verse 18 follows verse 17. And then finally in verse 19, this, this verse brings to a climax, really this whole section, as Jesus um, prays for their sakes, I sanctify myself. What does that mean? <laughs> um, first of all, Jesus does not need to be sanctified in the same sense that he too needs to be purified and set apart. No, he is without spot or blemish. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one who, who knew no sin. Um, so what does it mean then for Jesus to sanctify himself? The meaning is that as he um, approaches the cross by hours away from now, he was setting himself apart to the cross, to the cross. One of the meanings of sanctified is to, to separate, to be set apart. For us, it means that we have less and less to do with the world's values, and we have more and more to do with God's values. For Jesus to be sanctified simply means that he's setting himself apart to the cross. He has hit the point of no return. He will not be deterred. He, he will go all the way to Calvary. He will be high and lifted up on that cross, and he will bear our sins on the cross. And notice for whom he does this, beginning in verse 19. For their sakes. For the, for the sake of the, the disciples. Not for the sake of the whole world. For the sake of those who were given to him by the Father in eternity past. Jesus went to the cross for those he foreknew. He paid for your sins. He didn't go to the cross not knowing what sins he was paying for. He bore them in his flesh. He didn't just paint his blood with a, a broad stroke and just said, boy, I sure hope someone receives my blood. No, he paid for our sins. Jesus went to the cross. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And, and what that means is that when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he cancel out the, the certificate of, of debt comprised of the sins that we have committed, but there is also such power, such power in the blood of Christ that the death of Christ actually sanctifies and it purifies even our life today. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that in Christ, we are, we are putting off our old self. Putting off our old self, which belonged to our former way of life. And we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Think about it as taking off the old clothes and putting on the new ones. You're clothed in his righteousness. My old clothes, man, those things stink and are dirty. And we are putting on the new self. An another cross-reference for this is, is 1 Peter 2.24 that says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Yes, he has forgiven us of our sins. But there's even more in the depth of Christ and just canceling out our sin of debt. There is such power in that death that when he died, we died with him. Our old way of life died with him. And when he was raised from the dead, we have been raised to new life with him. Newness of life. And that's what baptism demonstrates. The, the old man, the old self going down into the water, being buried, if you will, and then being raised up to newness of life. So in verse 19, Jesus is praying, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So no one is ever saved and they just remain the way they are. That's impossible. There is sanctifying power in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a profound prayer. I mean, and Jesus is praying to the Father. Uh, the Father from eternity past has chosen for himself a people to be a love gift for the Son, a bride. And the Son at the appointed time came into the world and he made his Father known. He manifested him. And the Son went to the cross to die for those the Father has given him. And not a one that the Father has entrusted to his Son's care will ever perish. And all who truly believe in the Son will keep his word. And they will be sanctified day by day, becoming more and more like Christ. And they will shine his light until the appointed time when the Son returns and gathers for himself a bride. And he will take his bride to the place that he has been preparing, a new heaven and a new earth and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will be no more mourning nor crying or pain for he who sits on the throne will say behold I am making all things new What an amazing prayer this is. The best part is the father heard it and the father said yes to all of it. Well, thanks for hanging in here with me this morning. I pray the Lord's Prayer has ministered to you as much as it has ministered to me. And um, if you yourself um, need prayer this morning, we invite you to come forward. and um, Or even after service, of course, we'd be happy to pray with you. And at this time, you please stand. We have one more song to sing. Praise our Lord, our living hope. Thank you. <laughs>